One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to a history of Europe, key battles, the Battle of Grunwald, also known as Tannenberg, of 1410, part two of four. Last week I discussed the rise of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania Rus. By the mid-14th century, the rulers of Lithuania were at the head of one of the largest and most powerful states in Europe, and had grand ambitions to expand yet further. Their main rivals for control of the southeastern Baltic coastline, the main subject of this set of episodes, were the Kingdom of Poland and the Teutonic Knights. The main regions of conflict were Samogitia and Pomerania, both coveted by various sides for their strategic importance. The region of Samogitia, today in northwestern Lithuania, lies to the east of Pomerania, and in the southwest of Livonia, approximately Latvia and Estonia today, and so became an important land bridge between the two. As for Pomerania, also known as Western Prussia, its name originates from the Slavic for by the sea. It lies on the South Baltic coast, today divided between Germany and Poland. The strategic importance of Pomerania was that it lay on the sea route from the north German ports such as Lübeck to the East Baltic and therefore its rulers could aid or hinder commerce as it suited them. It also provided an important land corridor for crusaders coming from the Holy Roman Empire. The Dukes of Poland also coveted the region as it would guarantee them access to the Baltic Sea, an important consideration for the increasing volume of grain being shipped down the river Vistula. The indigenous peoples of Pomerania were conquered during a series of waves of invasions or crusades from the west. This began in 1147 with the so-called Wendish Crusade, an expedition led by Saxons and Danes and supported by the papacy as a means of converting the local pagans to Christianity. Between 1185 and 1227, Pomerania, along with most of the southern Baltic coast, was under sovereignty of Denmark. However, when the power of the kings of Denmark declined, especially after a defeat by Germans at the Battle of Bornhoveded in 1227, Denmark lost much of her territories, including Pomerania. (laughs) 
from 1227 until the end of the 1200s, the lands of Pomerania were contested by a confusing mix of Germans, Poles and native Slavs and Bolts. The key turning point was in 1306 in a dispute between two competing Dukes of Poland. Vladislav the Short, who would go on to become King of Poland from 1320 to 1333, and Leszek the Black, whose family owned land in Pomerania. When Vladislav attempted to arrest Leszek for treason, the response was a call for help from the German Dukes of Brandenburg, who also had their own claims to Pomerania. The Duke of Brandenburg was quickly able to occupy the whole of eastern Pomerania, except the city of Danzig, today known as Gdansk, whose garrison held out behind the walls of their citadel. The town of Danzig itself, with its many German merchants, surrendered without fighting. As the siege continued, the Polish commander at Danzig twice asked Vladislav to come to his aid, but it was told that since Novescu could be expected, he should seek help from the Teutonic Knights. He did so, and that fateful request was to mark the end of the first era of crusading in Prussia, when all the enemies of paganism customarily cooperated, and the beginning of more than a century of bitter conflict between the Poles and the Teutonic Knights. The Teutonic Knights, acting on Vladislav's request, drove the Brandenburg forces out of Danzig in September of 1308. The citizens apparently welcomed the new occupying forces at first, but soon fell out with the order and staged an uprising. The Grand Master of the Order, Heinrich von Plötzer, put down a revolt with the loss of considerable life, and now faced an unpleasant choice of whether to stay and finish the job, or to leave and so give up any hope of being paid for his services. He chose the latter, captured Dirschau and every other stronghold in possession of the Brandenburgers, and presented a bill for services rendered, 10,000 marks. Vladislav was short of money and refused to pay. A mistake, writes William Urban in his book, The Teutonic Knights and Military History, with long-term repercussions. There would be many years of confrontation with the Teutonic Knights, and Polish unification was set back for many years. The Grandmaster of the Teutonic Knights announced that he would keep Eastern Pomerania until the matter was resolved. His diplomats contacted the Brandenburg Dukes, who in 1309 sold their claims of sovereignty to the Teutonic Order at a price of 10,000 marks. In an age when states were defined not by ethnic identity, but by who was their legal ruler, that was as good a claim to possess the land as any had. The Polish nobility however, did not give up their claims. They stood behind Vladislav and his successors in demanding what they saw as the return of a province that had been only loosely connected to the historical kingdom through the 13th century. Polish national feeling made Eastern Pomerania a test case of patriotism, and anti-German feeling became centred on the Teutonic order. Unfortunately for both sides, the dispute became a long-term destruction for both, and prevented them dealing effectively with problems on their eastern frontiers, principally the threat of the fast-expanding Duchy of Lithuania. Even if the Teutonic Knights had seen the long-term implications of their actions, writes William Urban, the decision made sense in the situation they found themselves. Less than two decades before these events in 1291, the port city of Acre, the last stronghold of the Crusaders in the Middle East, fell, 
putting an end to crusading in the Holy Land. And so, in the autumn of 1309, the Order moved their headquarters to the fortress of Marienburg. A few kilometres upstream, they were Vistula from Danzig. They designed for the colossal castle of Marienburg, copied ideas from the recently built Papal Palace of Avignon in France. The central court was surrounded by multi-storied red brick buildings, the so-called High Castle, with its Gothic windows and doorways. The north gate was an impressive 14 metres high, suitable for ceremonial entrances and practically unassailable. In the building's basement were a number of large rooms for supplies, workshops, cells for prisoners and a treasury vault. Above the battlements rose the priest's tower, from which there was an excellent view of the surrounding countryside. Also in Marienburg were two chapels, St Mary and St Anne, where the grandmasters were buried, and a chapter room where important business was discussed, as well as numerous dormitories. The very size and complexity of the fortress was useful for its effects on visiting crusaders and diplomats, but also made it virtually impregnable if attacked. The Grandmaster of the Teutonic Order became less the head of a general crusader movement, more the leader of a sovereign state with its capital and main focus of attention now in Danzig. And in Danzig, as prosperity returned to the city and it became the leading commercial centre in the Baltic, the Teutonic Knights were no longer seen by its citizens as oppressive despots. These events occurred at a time when the Teutonic Order was facing at the same time a severe challenge to its legitimacy. The conduct of the military orders in general was under intense scrutiny at the highest levels of the Church. In 1307, Pope Clement V, under pressure from King Philip IV of France, authorised the arrest and suppression of the Knights Templar. The Teutonic Knights, likewise, came under suspicion and were forced to face similar accusations, but in the end avoided any punishments. The order, however, was put under pressure by the church to keep up the fight against the last remaining pagans in Europe. Conflict between the Teutonic Order and the Lithuanians, which had already been raging for decades, continued for another hundred years, with some kind of fighting almost every year. Great cruelty was conducted on both sides. Captured Teutonic commanders were burnt alive or suffocated by smoke, as they were sacrificed to the heathen gods. On the other hand, Lithuanian garrisons often preferred death at their own hands to a crusader's massacre. One characteristic of the Lithuanian Crusades was the participation of secular guest crusaders from all over Western Europe, including England, Scotland, France, Bohemia, Italy and Burgundy, as well as the Holy Roman Empire. Many believed devoutly in the ideals that had given birth to the crusading phenomenon, encouraged no doubt by the promise of remissions of sins. John of Luxembourg, the King of Bohemia, who was to meet his death in Poitiers in 1356, but beforehand actively participated in the Lithuanian Crusades, expressed the view of many by describing the Teutonic Order as quote, an unbreakable wall to defend the faith against the Lithuanians and their partisans, whoever they may be, pestilential enemies of Christ. End quote. 
As the 14th century progressed, the motivations for guest crusaders evolved from the traditional religious obligations of earlier crusades to those of the new fashions of chivalry. This was the age, after all, when chivalry was at its height under King Edward III of England. For nobles who wanted to prove themselves by doing noble deeds, the crusading expeditions into Samogitia provided a way to demonstrate their valour, daring and knightly worth. In an age of growing nationalism, the crusades became just about the only way for the international brotherhood of knighthood to maintain their bonds. The interest in crusading in Prussia and Lithuania is reflected by the contemporary English poet Geoffrey Chaucer in his famous Canterbury Tales. Quote, there was a knight, a most distinguished man, who from the day on which he first began, to ride abroad had followed chivalry, truth, honour, generous thought and courtesy, as well in Christian as in heathen places, and ever honoured for his noble graces. He saw the town of Alexandria fall, often at feast the highest place of all. Among the nations fell to him in Prussia, in Lithuania he had fought, and Russia. End quote. Interest in chivalric crusading, however, declined after the disastrous Battle of Nicopolis in 1396, when a combined Western army of crusaders was routed by the Ottomans. From that moment, the Turks were rightly perceived as a more serious threat to Christendom than the Lithuanians and Samogitians. Despite the vast expenditure of money and labour, neither the knights and their associates nor the Lithuanians were able to make permanent gains against the other. In the areas each side securely controlled, the forested land was cleared so as to be able to support sizable populations. But this still left a belt of uncleared lands, almost a hundred miles wide, between the settled zones of the Lithuanians and those of the Order in Prussia and Livonia. Within this belt, which approximated to the region of Samogitia, the going was very tough. Not only trees and undergrowth, but also marsh, bogs, lakes and innumerable small rivers presented problems of logistics and transport, which medieval armies were ill-equipped to deal with. The river Neiman is so placid and winding that boatmen could spend a whole day going around a bend and then light their evening fire by walking a short distance to the embers left in the previous day's camp. Progress thus so slow became a particular problem in campaigns when weather conditions could be changeable. The ideal conditions for winter campaigning were hard frost with little snow, or in summer, campaigning was possible once the ground dried, but sudden changes in the weather, such as heavy rains or fast-melting snow, could prove devastating. Most of the fighting took place in lands adjacent to the rivers Daugava and Neiman. Each side tried to hold on to or gain a stretch of river that could be fortified and garrisoned, and so serve as a reliable entry point into enemy country beyond the wilderness. This meant lavishing more and more resources on territory that had little intrinsic value and could not be properly settled or cleared for as long as the hostilities lasted. The 31-year rule of the Grand Master Winfric von Kniprod from 1351 to 1382 saw the Teutonic Order at their height. 
Under his leadership, the knights managed to win control of the Niemen up to the confluence of the River Kaunas. For a short period, they gained an advantage with the introduction of cannon, but the Lithuanians quickly learnt how to adopt the new technology themselves. The result was that the armies of both sides wore each other out. Both were also able to constantly draw new strength from their successfully expanding economies, which just helped perpetuate the conflict. And both continued to hope to be able to achieve some kind of knockout blow, to be able to muster sufficiently effective forces to capture the other's capital and take over their opponent's lands. For the Grand Master of the Teutonic Knights, the long struggle with the Lithuanians was one of three main political preoccupations. The other two were, firstly, to extend his sovereignty to include the other semi-independent powers in Prussia and Livonia, such as the bishoprics of Riga, and secondly, to secure Danzig and eastern Pomerania against reconquest by Poland. When the Teutonic Knights captured eastern Pomerania in 1309, they had been able to take advantage of the disunity of the Polish nobility and the separation of Poland into five duchies, each with virtually independent rulers. But Vladislav the Short, who reigned as King of Poland from 1320 to 1333, managed to reunite the central provinces and to establish at least nominal control over a number of other areas. Under his leadership, the Poles successfully fended off an invasion by the Teutonic Knights, who they defeated in the Battle of Plovce of 1331. Although the battle had no great strategic importance, it was an important victory for Poles to demonstrate that they were still a significant power and able to hold their own against a powerful military force. The son of Vladislav the Short, named Casimir the Great, reigned 1333-1370, was able to continue the process of the reunification of Poland. In this he was assisted by an unusually favourable combination of circumstances, as described by Adam Zamoyski in his book Poland History. Quote, As a minor ice age, reduced yields and ruined harvests throughout much of Europe, Poland basked in a more than usually warm and temperate spell, which produced not only bumper crops, but also conditions in which Mediterranean fruit could be grown and wine produced. While the Hundred Years' War devastated the richest lands in Western Europe and wrought financial havoc as far afield as Italy, Poland was spared lengthy conflicts. Finally, as the entire continent was engulfed by the plague of 1348, the Black Death, most of Poland remained unaffected. End quote. Casimir launched a building programme, which, along with the cathedrals of Krakow and Gniezno and churches all over the country, gave rise to 65 new fortified towns, plus the fortification of many existing ones. He also constructed a canal linking important salt mines with his capital of Krakow, founded a new university at Krakow, helped codify the entire corpus of laws into two books, reformed the fiscal system by creating a new central chancery, and in the towns helped establish new guilds. These measures helped lay the foundations of economic prosperity for Poland. There was a rapid rise in the numbers of merchants and skilled artisans, when an influx of Jews provided them with banking facilities. 
these artisans began to exploit, manufacture goods such as Finnish cloth, which helped supplement Poland's traditional exports of grain, cattle, timber and other forest products. Casimir the Great was also active in foreign affairs, as well as the integration of Galicia into the Polish kingdom described earlier. In 1345, he defeated King John of Bohemia in a conflict over control of Silesia. His territory was thus more than twice as large as it was at the start of his reign. As far as the Teutonic Knights were concerned, though, Casimir decided to come to an arrangement. In 1343, the two sides signed a treaty called the Peace of Kirish, which ended hostilities between the two powers for several decades. After all, as both were Roman Christians, in many ways they were supposed to be working together against heathens and pagans. The Peace of Kirish suited both sides as it allowed the Teutonic Knights to concentrate their efforts against the Lithuanians and the Poles to advance their kingdom southeast. Contrary to the popular view nowadays, the relationship between the Teutonic Knights and the Piast Dukes of Poland although it varied considerably over the years, was in general friendly and mutually helpful. Moreover, writes William Urban in his book, quote, In many ways the Teutonic Knights had helped bring about the favourable changes that were now occurring in the kingdom. By protecting the frontier from pagan attack, the Teutonic Knights had helped stabilise the country so that the Dukes could concentrate on badly needed internal reform. By bringing about a steady stream of crusaders, across Silesia and Great Poland, they had helped stimulate the local economy. End quote. Also worthy of note is that the leaders of Poland were attempting in some ways to achieve the same objective as the Teutonic Knights, the encouragement of colonisation of conquered territories by their people. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Casimir the Great died in 1370. During his long reign, and even for a period before, a new concept of the Polish state was evolving. The idea was that the sovereignty should no longer be invested in the person of the monarch, but instead in a specific geographical area, the so-called Corona Reni Polonia, an expression meant to embrace all the Polish lands, even those which had fallen under foreign control. Although married four times, Casimir had no heir and left the throne to his nephew, Louis of Anjou, King of Hungary. Louis was a member of the Angevins, one of the great ruling dynasties of medieval Europe, which were becoming more and more to dominate the continent. Louis's branch of the family ruled territories in various parts of Europe, 
Provence in the south of France, the Kingdom of Naples and Sicily in southern Italy, and from 1308, the Kingdom of Hungary. As it happened, the Angevines' connections with Poland would not outlive Louis and last less than 20 years, but in the history of their Polish and Hungarian subjects, writes Norman Davis in his book, God's Playground, A History of Poland, it marked the forging of an important link between the two nations, which would last a long time. Despite their different origins, the Poles, the Slavs, and the Hungarians as steppe nomads, their history shared much in common. They accepted Christianity at the same moment, and both considered themselves eastern bastions of the Roman Church. They experienced the same ambivalent relationship with the German emperor, sometimes overlord, sometimes enemy, sometimes ally. They both developed into multinational kingdoms where the various native cultures were subordinated to Latin culture of church and state. And most importantly, they shared common enemies. The German Empire and Bohemia to the west, the Orthodox Church, Moldavians and Wallachians, and eventually Tatars and Turks in the east. To this day, the following saying is still well known throughout Poland and Hungary. Quote, the Poles and the Magyar, like brothers, stand, whether with sword or with tankard in hand. End quote. King Louis of Anjou was more interested in spending time in Hungary than Poland, so he proposed that the future husband of one of his daughters should rule there in his stead. Such a situation suited well the interests of the Polish barons, who were able to negotiate for themselves a number of privileges in an agreement which came to be called the Statutes of Kosice. These included the renunciation of the king's rights to impose taxes and levies, and the agreement that official posts in Polish provinces would be held only by nobles who were natives of the province. Such was the origin of a system of aristocratic democracy which was peculiar to Poland through the late Middle Ages, and continued as late as the 18th century, whereby the nobility were to play a decisive and sometimes destructive role in Polish political life. Louis died without a legitimate male heir, and so his death in 1382 precipitated another succession crisis and a brief civil war between rival factions. His younger brother, Jadwiga, was crowned Queen of Poland in 1384, but when her husband-to-be, Wilhelm von Habsburg, turned up in Krakow, he met a frosty reception. The leading Polish nobles, fearful of falling under Habsburg control, forced William to flee and annulled the engagement. They persuaded the now 11-year-old Jadwiga to break her promise of marriage to the Austrian prince and in the interest of the nation to marry instead the 37-year-old Lithuanian pagan Grand Duke named Jogaila. For Jadwiga, the experience was extremely painful. She was being told to abandon a young man with whom she had been betrothed since infancy and with a pagan with whom she could not even converse. As part of the bargain, Jogaila had to agree to certain demands made by the Polish nobles, which were incorporated into a document known as the Union of Creveaux. In return for Jadwiga's hand, Jogaila was to accept both Roman Catholicism, not only for himself, but his whole nation, and the political union of Lithuania with Poland. This new Christian monarch was then crowned as Vladislav II Jogaila, and thereby founded a dynasty known as the Jagiellonians. The Polish nobility, which already assumed the role of kingmaker, were able to strengthen their already considerable powers to transform Poland into an elective monarchy. The Union of Krivo was unfortunate for young Queen Jadwiga. 
she turned to a life of chastity, and turning her back on the barons, dedicated her life to the poor and to the church. Numerous legends about miracles were recounted to justify her canonization as a saint, which took place in 1997. For example, she was said to have often prayed before a large black crucifix, hanging in the north aisle of Ravel Cathedral. During one of these prayers, the Christ on the cross is said to have spoken to her. The crucifix, St. Yadviga's cross, is still there with her relics beneath it. According to another legend, Yadviga one time took a piece of jewellery from her foot and gave it to a poor stonesman who had begged her for help. Her footprint, which was left in the floor of his workplace, even though the plaster had already hardened before her visit, is known as Yadviga's foot and can still be seen in one of Krakow's churches. When she fell gravely ill in 1399, her castle was surrounded by a crowd of peasants and townsfolk bearing gifts for her recovery. But alas, she passed away on the 17th of July, 1399, aged just 24, leaving her entire personal fortune for the refounding of the Jagiellonian University in Krakow. Her death prompted the renegotiations of the terms of the political union between Poland and Lithuania to put it to a more lasting footing and so the balance of power in Eastern Europe suddenly and dramatically changed. The Kingdom of Poland and Lithuania came to be by far the largest power in Europe, and a serious threat to its traditional enemies, the Teutonic Knights and the Orthodox Russian Princes. Most immediately for the Teutonic Knights, the conversion of Yogaela to Roman Christianity overnight neutralised the formal pretext for their crusading in Lithuania. Instead, the power struggle and the fighting between the Teutonic Knights on the one hand and the Poles and Lithuanians now intensified, leading to the key Battle of Tannenberg, or Grunwald, which I will come to in the next two episodes. As always, thank you very much for listening to A History of Europe, Key Battles. Please like my page on Facebook or visit the blog on www.historyeurope.net or you can also visit me on Twitter at HistoryEuropeKB Thank you for listening and I hope you can join me next week for part three of the Battle of Grunwald. <laughs>